When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. Story's true. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Hey, diggers, Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist here with the rock and roll librarian together once again, Shelly Sorensen. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Christian. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I hear uh, you have your first like official band show coming up uh, at the end of the week, right? I do. And at my age now, I'm getting into performing. So, you know, you, it's never too late, people. No, yeah. no, no, no. Super no. fun. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, you know, I, I will be there to, uh, to see and, uh, oh, I'll bring some tomatoes if I have to. <laughs> Just rotten ones. Kidding, kidding, yeah. kidding, kidding. I've also been out to see some really, um, a couple of gigs of people that I've covered in the books that I've read for this podcast. And one of them was Michael Nesmith and the First National Band. Oh, that's right. Did they live up to everything that you expected? Yeah, they were really great. And he was so gracious. He was very happy that people came out to see him and hear the songs that he um, performed and wrote and played, you know, when he, after the monkeys broke up and he was with the first national band, kind of yeah, country rock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I saw Phil, Val- Phil Alvin last night That's in, right, the blasters. Uh, with the blasters here, right here in Pacifica. That's right. So yeah. that would, uh, let's see, Under the Big From Black the, Sun. Yes, Under the Big Black Sun. They were involved in that. Yeah. Uh, that so group. it's fun yeah. to connect up those, you know, those parts of my life and go, actually go out and see the musicians that I've read about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, always important. And yeah. maybe our listeners are doing the same thing. I hope so. All right. Yeah. So what do we have on tap today? We have a book about Joni Mitchell. I read the book Reckless Daughter, a portrait of Joni Mitchell by David Yaffe. And um, I listened to the podcast of your interview with him, which was very interesting and really Oh, thank you. Yeah. Need we... to hear him talking about the book and about the person, you know, that I had been re- reading about. And um, so that was just a nice synergy that I've read this book and we're going to talk about it today. Yes. Mr. Yaffe is getting a twofer here with the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project That's so, right. or, or Rock and Roll Archaeology, I should say, our new branding. So. Let's see. Let's get into it. Joni Mitchell, Reckless Daughter. I'm going to kind of play, uh, you know, at, let you tell us mostly about this and I'll, I'll 
chime in every once in a while, kind of like what we normally do here. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do know that uh, that uh, that Joni uh, was born November seventh, nineteen forty three, on the Canadian plains. That's right. And so let's start there. So Saskatoon. Tell us a little bit about her uh, upbringing, or tell us how you know you want to tell uh, uh, about, about her the beginnings. Book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, she was she was born on the prairie, and um, as he says, there was no place for artists and poets. Margaret Atwood actually said <laughs> yeah. later during some <laughs> Canadian uh, awards ceremony that they were both part of the Canadian lunatic generation, <laughs> the shared experience of Canadian creative types. Oh, a Margaret Atwood who wrote. Uh, Handmaid's Tale, right. which is like a big cultural phenomenon, especially right now, now. On, yeah. uh, on, on yeah. Hulu, I think so. And All right. her parents were not really up for having, you know, this child that came out, uh, you know, they were very kind of conservative and, and stayed and, you know, not, not imaginative. And then they had this daughter who just came out just full of fun and wanting to paint and dance and you know do and and just not follow the norms she she just you know that's the way she was born and she had um as Yafe described in your interview um polio at age 11 and that was before they had vac- a vaccine for polio right so she spent a lot of time in a polio colony and didn't see her parents for many months because the, you know, they were, she was in quarantine basically. Mm -hmm. So she had to deal with that. I mean, she not only became disabled, you know, physically disabled by um, her spine was kind of distorted and she dealt with that the rest of her life. Her, Her left arm was very weak. And so we'll find out as we go through the book, how this, how that. Well, I'm sure she's still dealing with it. So yes, apparently in late life, you know, it's something called post polio syndrome where um, it starts, you know, the illness kind of comes back in a chronic way to kind of haunt you. And she has had back pain and problems with her, um, you know, her arm playing the guitar and stuff like that. So, but, but one thing that happened while she was in the polio colony and because she became somewhat, somewhat disabled and couldn't be athletic and do the things she used to do was that she turned more inward and, and became an artist. And one, and the first area of her artistic talent was in the graphic arts and she was a painter, um, which is always, sometimes that goes along with music. I know a lot of um, yep, a lot of musicians as, have as he uh, says, the painting bug at the same time. Yeah, she went to art school in Calgary, which um, Yafe deems a rock and roll tradition because many, like John Lennon, for example, yeah, at that of, time, a mm-hmm. lot of people went mm-hmm. to art school. Yeah, because there was, I guess, if you wanted to be a musician or just artistic in any way, that was one thing that you could do, which was not going to college, you know, and that was a way to be creative because I guess they didn't have music schools. Well, no, they did have music schools. So anyway, but that's what she did. She, when she was a teenager, you know, she was a little kind of a bad girl and wanted to hang out with the, the guys and, you know, played, you know, took up the ukulele and learned how to play folk music. And, um, you know, when she got to Calgary, she started to play in coffee shops for $15 a week. She was uh, 20 years old and she started to, you know, write write some simple songs and learn how to play the guitar and learn how to sing folk songs. Well, let's throw a song at everybody. So what's the first song that you think we should play? Well, 
the um one of the songs she wrote very early on was both sides now and it and this is one thing that happens um in the book is he meant there's a lot of songs that she wrote before they ever got on an album you know she didn't they didn't get on albums maybe till five years later but she was performing them in coffee houses and and that was one of the ones she she performed all right so let's play in <laughs> one of the biggest <laughs> hits that Joni Mitchell ever had especially it's, I think it started off as a Judy Collins hit uh, first. Um, both sides now. Rows and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air and feather canyons everywhere. Looked at clouds that we but now they only block the sun. They rain and oh, you know, sometimes I listen to those songs and it just hate the artist because how do you get so good so quickly, so early? You know, just the depth lyrically of the song is. Uh, you know, what's she, 19, 20 yeah. when she writes this thing? And uh, how do you how do you figure that out? Um, and, and one thing that's really... I know it now. You yeah. know, I can look <laughs> and go, oh, yeah, I mean, of course it means, <laughs> you know, that. But And that's how life is. But how do you know when you're 20? But I, I guess when you've dealt with some of the adversity that she had as a child, and then, you know, at that time in her life, you know, it makes a little bit more sense. Right. And this is one that's particularly a great beginning song because it starts with a small kind of thing and it grows, you know, kind of almost in concentric circles out from it. So it's taking one little theme and kind of applying it to all these different situations and time periods and ages of people and everything. So it's pretty, uh, Oh, that's bold. Pretty good. Yeah. So, um, well, one thing that happened around that time is she was, um, she, she got pregnant with a, just a friend that she had had sex with her first time. Yeah. Yeah. That does yeah. happen. Not just in soap operas, <laughs> I suppose. Um, and she, uh, because she didn't want to be the only art student who was still, who a, was virgin, still a virgin. So, yeah. Yeah. so what she did was she didn't have any really means of support. I mean, that was a really shameful thing at that time. She couldn't move home and tell her parents. Actually, she never told her parents, I believe about it you know, till much, much later. And so yeah, she gave, it came out in 97. Yeah. She, she put her baby in foster care and then she met somebody named Chuck Mitchell who became her husband and she married him. One of the reasons was that she thought, you know, being married, that she would be able to go fetch her child. And, um, that, that's not what happened. I don't, think he was kind of open to to that or else they got caught up in her career and she just never went and did it and she got married and they and then signed the adoption paper soon after that um and she didn't have a good you know impression of him at least in hindsight but they did start a musical duo together so that got her first of all it got her to america because he they got married he was an american and he got her a visa and then she was able to move to Detroit and they set up a, like a twosome, you know, a duo performing performance and, um, you know, played in, in coffee shops and bars and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep. So one of the songs she... And she quickly eclipses him. She does. I mean, <laughs> you know, he, he apparently thought she he was... He still harbors... Uh... 
some uh, feelings for that. Oh, yeah. She she felt like he condescended to her, definitely, because he was college educated and she wasn't. Mm -hmm. But, you know, she was clearly more musically talented than he was. In fact, this is the time that she started developing her own alternate tunings, not just those the standard alternate tunings, but but ones that fit her because her left arm was so weak from the polio. polio, She couldn't do, you know, bar chords and, Mm -hmm. and really work the fretboard the way other guitar players do so she just retuned the guitar so it would be easier for her to 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 set the, the the notes on the left hand and then she did a lot of work with her right hand and at the same time came up with uh, you know this original sound right so, so and it know. makes her sound very distinctive it sure does yeah even when she's not singing you can tell yeah. oh there's Joni yeah. Mitchell playing yeah. the guitar I believe there's 65 different tunings that she uses wow. nowadays yeah or, amazing. Or, or had yeah. up there so so one song she wrote around this time and played um it actually didn't appear on blue until about five years later but she was playing it back in 1967 as early as 67 it was called little green and this story i mean this song gives clues about her private life and her daughter that she came up for adoption and this was the beginning of her revealing secret hiding secrets hiding in plain sight and sending messages to her daughter through songs and so this song is is has phrases like the children who made her and he went to california which was what the the guy that impregnated her did and a child with a child so all right let's play a little of little green So it's funny, uh, and and I mentioned this to David Yaffe when we were uh, speaking, that, you know, a couple of things really made a big difference in her life. You know, obviously the polio, but more importantly, the, the, the birth of her daughter that she then had to give away to adoption, that then was the muse uh, for her. And until... 1997 when uh, you know um, our daughter found uh, Joni uh, I believe it's Killarn is that right is, yes uh, Killarn she kind of lost the muse there it's uh, it's crazy what we do as as artists to you know make something that drives you that causes you uh, distress or pain or joy and uh, happiness and you know you use it to uh, to put pen to paper so you yeah. know Here's a perfect example of that. And then the, the last thing I'll say, and then we'll move on, is just, you know, it's funny. You listen to those songs in one way, and then when you find out that, oh, she had a daughter that she gave for adoption, and now the songs take on a completely different meaning. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty wild. So. That's funny. When you listen to that song, it seems clear, like, 
Oh, yeah. How, she's how did nobody about, know? Yeah. How? Did, uh, come on. It's yeah. it's so obvious. Right. 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 But right. not. You know, right. she could have been talking about a third person situation too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which which I think you know most people probably just assumed if they right. even went that far in thinking about it. Right. Right. So her her uh, marriage to Chuck Mitchell didn't last very long. Um, so you know they. They just, he didn't see her. She didn't feel appreciated. Um, they split up. So did the, so did their little uh, artistic duo. But um, she, you know, she did okay. She met quite a few men after that. And I don't mean that in a put down way. I mean, there were many, many musicians that she had relationships through the years that. Yeah, she was the conqueror, just just so we can set the, the record straight here. Mm-hmm. Uh, not the conquest. Right. I mean, not the conquered, excuse me. Right, <laughs> so, right. Was, yeah, she yeah. was, uh, she went into these all these relationships, I think, you know, eyes wide open. And, you know, they were um, mutual in many ways. I mean, not just romantically, but musically. So the men that she that she had affairs with or or relationships with or married were were very good musicians. Yeah. And there was a lot of mm-hmm. cross pollination going on, you know, between them. And the one of the first ones, um, people that she had a relationship with was Leonard Cohen, who um, died a little while ago. Yeah. Um, who says she was uneducated, but he, he doesn't mean that in an uh, un, in a, a pejorative way. He means that she was really, she didn't have any class, any training, and she was... That was un, all just raw talent. She was uninfluenced, is what mm-hmm. he This came from her. You know, she listened to folk songs, and then she just kind of took off from there. She right. actually listened to Miles Davis when she was in high school, too. She chose her influences. You know, she didn't need them, though, because she had plenty going on in her own yeah, brain. Yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't cultured and uh, shown the rules and, uh, you know, the classical education of, right. okay, here's here's all the rules, here's how it works, and then now you need to forget that and try to create your own uh, art out of it. Um, right. She just naturally, you know, picked up on uh, the moment uh, she had. I, I think the tuning and uh, her disability uh, turned out to be quite advantageous in creating an original sound, a chasing sound, which is what, you know, a lot of music is about, is trying to come up with something different. Right. And, you know, she used uh, what some people might consider a detriment. And and I'm sure she some days felt it as a, as a true uh, detriment, but you know, it did create something very unique uh, that served her well. Right. Yeah, definitely. The issues with Leonard Cohen, who she was only actually with romantically for a few months in 1967, but they both influenced each other for a, a lot longer. And then they were friends. So this is kind of one of the hallmarks of Joni's relationships is most of the time she was able to remain friends and actually also collaborators with the men that she had relationships with. One of the things that Leonard Cohen said and one of the things that I think is really cool about this book is that that the author has interviewed, somehow gotten interviews with all of these amazing people. I don't know how he did it, but oh, he, inter- he worked hard over he ten years. He interviewed Leonard yeah. Cohen. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and he has a lot of really interesting insights. He could have just done a, you know, adulatory, you know, biopic about Joni Mitchell because he clearly really loves her. And yeah, that um, was pretty obvious. In and our she discussion. Ha- she's a very opinionated person and she sees the, her history in a very particular way, like we all do. And so he wanted to gather the people's, um, you know, takes on it. And they're not always, they don't always align with her memories of what happened. But one of the things that Leonard Cohen said about her that he just marveled at was that, uh, speaking of the tunings, that she could be up sta- uh, uh, on stage and tune just at the drop of a hat. And she would carry it. It was part of also her stage style was the creation of this patter while she's on stage between songs she had to do that so she would have time to tune like retune her whole guitar all of the strings you know while she's talking and Leonard's like oh my god I need to be in a a dark room with no sound and you know really concentrate just to tune to one tuning and she would just be chattering away and you know plucking the the string and moving the peg right right, right, right. and he, he just thought that was really interesting and he was so happy when electronic tuners came on board <laughs> as were most of us well all right well let's play uh, leonard cohen's song let's play bird on the wire which i think is uh, uh his song to her right yes i think it was influenced by her painting of uh her her in-laws as a bunch of different birds on a wire and and her ex-husband <laughs> hanging upside down it's kind of a funny painting but he took off from it all right <laughs> one of my favorite leonard cohen songs bird on the wire yeah like a bird on the wire like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free like the worm on a hook like a night from some old-fashioned book I have saved Rest in peace, Leonard Cohen. Yeah. That, um, a lot of really great covers of that song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Where are we heading? We are heading to, um, now, out of the arms of Leonard Cohen, she is going <laughs> to David Crosby. I don't know if, how many people know. She actually had a, a fairly short summer romance with David Crosby in 67, 68. Well, I know so he produced her there. first album. Yes. And he, um, they were in Florida, I guess, vacationing. And, and untrue to type, he was in a good mood. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> he was carefree. He was only smoking weed and not doing other drugs. And so he was um, fairly attractive. Attractive, I suppose, at that time, and and when they got back to New York City, where she was living at the time, you mean he didn't look like a walrus? Is that what yeah. you're trying to suggest? <laughs> well, I just meant, you know, how when people are in good moods, they're more attractive than when they're grumpy, and so when they got back to New York, um, he was just turned kind of grumpy and unattractive. But even after they broke up, he produced her first record and was always in awe of her musicianship. Yes. The first record was Song to a Seagull, mm-hmm. which came out in 1968. And one of the songs on the um, album is Cactus Tree, which is a song about a woman, a.k.a. Joni, 
who is who is being pigeonholed by her suitors and she just wants to be free so the first verse is about david crosby apparently and so she goes through different um verses of different men and who they are and how they tried to kind of tie her down but she was too busy being free well i guess let's play a little of cactus tree yes sailing in a decade full of dreams and he takes her to a schooner and he treats her like a queen bearing beads from California with her amber stones and green he has called her from the harbor he has kissed her with his freedom he has heard her off to starboard Okay, so uh, every verse is a different man, right? Yes. Wow, she is quite the sexual being. Well, she certainly is. Uh, yeah. Well, hey, November 7th, she's a Scorpio. I totally understand. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. All right, moving on, moving on. <laughs> but, you know, she's a she's a rock, I mean, not a rock and roll star yet, but, you know, that was the times. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she's heading that way. Yeah. And um, yeah, the next album that came out for her right right after her first one was Clouds, which did quite well. But it's actually a new album filled with old songs. So a lot of them, for example, had been covered by other people already. She'd written them maybe five years ago. She's in a whole different situation than when she wrote the song. And um, Both Sides Now, which we played already, was one that she claimed that Judy Collins had come out with first, and she felt like she really needed to do her own rendition for it. Yeah, which we played at the beginning. Yeah. Right. And so then she actually had a producer, which was Paul Rothschild. Yeah, the I think he Doors was producer. her last producer for mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. she Yeah, she didn't really have a producer after that. No, she became she was the producer. She just that's didn't right. claim it. She, she claimed, wanted a partner yeah, who yeah. Yaffe described in, in the interview you did with him, Henry Louis, yeah, the, who was more than an engineer. Yeah. More than mm-hmm. an engineer. But he did turn the dials. I mean, that was his main main focus to, right. certainly to start with. Right. Uh, but definitely um, you know, she bounced off of ideas, but in the end, really, she is producing uh, yeah, she, these as albums he said, herself. Um, she liked assistance without control, which I can totally, you know, connect with. There you Who go. Who wants to be controlled? There you go. And that's what happened to not just women musicians, but men musicians too, but probably more to women musicians, I would say. And she didn't want to get dragged down in that in that way. Um, and have people kind of dictating what she was supposed to do. Well, I tip the hat to Henry Louis. Yes. He did a great job, apparently, because they all sound really good. Yeah, she didn't and, need a and producer. He allowed, no, he allowed her to be her. And yeah, uh, that's, that's right. what's really important. So. Yeah. So um, one of the things that happened, she moved to Laurel Canyon from New York City and David Geffen was one of her friends, I guess, in New York City. And she moved with him to Laurel Canyon and bought her own house. And it was a a cool place. People came to hang out at. Oh, God, yes. And one of them. Party Central. One of them was Graham Nash, Mm -hmm. who I can't remember exactly how she met him, but she picked him up from the airport and brought him to her house where Crosby 
and stills were already there, you know, like playing her piano and hanging out and playing music. Mm-hmm. A little and, Buffalo Springfield, a little birds. I guess now so. we're going to drop in a little Hollies. And we got Nash walking into the living room while they're playing this song, you, the song You Don't Have to Cry. Um, and he just started singing with them. And as she likes to say, Crosby, Stills and Nash was formed in her living room in that moment <laughs> because they just went, oh my God, you're perfect for for us join our band yeah so, <laughs> and, and, and the super group was formed that's right and she of course had um then entered into a lovely romance with graham nash he of course marveled at her songwriting i'm sure there was plenty about him to marvel about and um he describes her as having one foot in the 1950s of her youth and one foot in the new counterculture and she was very domestic she painted he he took lots of photographs and they had a lovely domestic life and he wrote the song our house about her so they you know were were they were two artists living together but it was difficult there was they were a creative they were both creative and it was not a competition but there wasn't really it, it was described as there was not really enough room in the house for these two artists to live. In fact, they, they had competition over the piano. That was their competition. <laughs> and they were going to get married. They couldn't just get a second piano yeah, and put it I in know. a different part of the house. That's true. And they were about to get married, but she got cold feet and she didn't want to end up like her grandmother. And she just wanted to be, you know, I don't know. She didn't want to get tied down, I guess. So she wrote him a, a telegram breaking up with him. And even though she really loved him. So I don't quite understand that, but there was some, obviously she had her reasons. And the there's a story about how they went on, she and Crosby and him went on this wild sailboat ride together after they broke up from Jamaica to Panama. And he tells the story one way and she tells it another way. So it's a really good um, example of, of um, the author's journalism is that he, you know, brings these different sides to the story, right, right. you know, yep. together. Mm-hmm. Um And she had her first solo at Carnegie Hall that year. Her parents came out and her mother, instead of being really super proud and reveling in her daughter's um, success, success, Mm -hmm. tut-tutted over Joni's clothes. She didn't like her (laughs) mini skirts and stuff. So this is the parenting she's coming from. Right, right. But the next amazing thing that happens to her, doesn't happen to her, I should say, is she didn't get to go to Woodstock. Right. That was a... Um, a really obviously a big deal at that time and she thought she couldn't go because she was on the Dick Cavett show the next day and she thought she would miss it so she decided not to go but then many people that Forgot did about go the to Woodstock right. yeah, got, came back to be on the Cavett show but meanwhile in the 24 hours of the festival or in the 24 hours between be when she found out she couldn't go to being on the Cavett show, she wrote the song Woodstock because she heard so much about it. She was watching it on TV. She was reading about it in the paper. And she wrote the song like a kind of like she was a fan. And she it, and the interesting thing is it wouldn't have been written if she'd been at Woodstock performing. She would never have written that song. And that is a fantastic song. It's One of the great greatest song. songs uh, of the 60s. There's Every, a, everybody knows the CSN 
uh, and Y sung uh, version. version, but uh, yeah. but I, actually uh, over over the years, I, I I think I prefer Joni's version. It's uh, it's much more subdued, obviously, but uh, man, I just it just gives it, it it's more of it gives me chills. It's it's not yeah. it, it's, it's just a, a totally different vibe. So let's play a little of Woodstock, written by Joni Mitchell. That's right. I came upon a child of God He was walking along the road And I asked him, where are you going? And this he told me I'm going on down to Yasgur's farm I'm gonna join in a rock and pretty a pretty um cool rendition of Woodstock and one thing I was wondering hmm? haunting yeah and one thing I was wondering is my those backup vocals are really cool and I wondered um who who was on them and we just found out that it was her all of those voices I taught her on everything it's the the Wurlitzer the obviously the solo vocal and yeah all of the yeah and I I just just thinking of course she wants to be in control of her artistic (laughs) process why let other people in yeah but you know that's the way she was so yeah and so then she had another after Woodstock um, she came out with another album which was Ladies of the Canyon and that had of course three big um, songs on it once Woodstock was one of them and um, the other one was Big Yellow Taxi but the one I'm interested in um, because it has a cute story is Circle Game great song yeah and the reason she wrote this song is that um, she was friends with Neil Young, another Canadian, and he wrote a song called Sugar Mountain because he just turned 21. And he actually was banned from going to the teenage clubs that he used to go to and where all his friends were still going. And so it was this odd kind of, you know, twist on um, the age thing kind of usually when people turn 21, they get to go to more bars and stuff like that. But in this case, he was <laughs> you, you because can't go to he the was an adult, bars, right? he couldn't yeah. go to the teen bar. And so he wrote Sugar Mountain about life after being 21. What was that all about? And all his kind of anxiety about that. Mm-hmm. And so she wrote this song, Circle Game. She said that was a song to make both of them feel hopeful about adulthood. <laughs> so the girl There's singing... nothing to be hopeful no, about No, the girl adulthood. singing Circle Game was singing to the boy on Sugar Mountain, consoling him. Isn't that sweet? Wow, okay. <laughs> well, let's play a little of the Circle Game. And the seasons, they go round and round And the pains of ponies go up and down We're captive on a carousel of time We can't return, we can only look Behind from where we came And go round and round and round in a circle Then the child moved in time 
So, of course, we can only play short pieces of the song, so I opted for the chorus uh, here. One, because it's just so compelling, uh, a song, um, a piece of, of the song right there. Uh, it really just lays the gauntlet down. And the fact is, is that the background singers are Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. <laughs> That's cute. I did not I did not know that till you told me. So after um let's see soon after that she um embarked on a relationship with Mr. James Taylor who she met on a Greenpeace fundraiser in Alaska. Wow, she uh, she's just she keeps him on the A list, that's for sure. Oh yeah, she's only <laughs> this the best. Is, this is, yeah, she's, she's not slumming here, boys. I'm sorry, and girls. only the best and cutest, I might say, with the exception of David Crosby, who's not my type. So he David's was, still A list. He's yeah, still A list. He's A list, I guess. Uh, uh, Musician you know, wise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so James at the time um, was only twenty-two. Yeah, she was a new, little older was, than was, him. Yeah, he was. He was new to the new new to the world here. Yes, right. they had a short relationship. They uh, apparently Taylor fell very hard for Joni, but he was um, he had clinical depression and he was a heroin addict at the time. They did collaborate on some things. She sings on his albums, Mudside Slim, which was one of my favorite albums when I was younger. I did not. I didn't know she was singing on it, uh-huh. or maybe I didn't care at the time. And she, um, and then I think he sang um, some on her album too. And she just had to get out though, because he was, his career was taking off, but he was going down emotionally and psychologically. And she wasn't going to be taken down with him. His, his song Fire and Rain actually describes his his depression and his heroin problem. But from that relationship, because she was so, you know, it was so, um, it was a really intense relationship and she was sad to have to leave him. So she put a lot of that feeling into her next album, which was one of her biggest albums, which was Blue and is all about blue, feeling blue, not just feeling blue, but feeling. This album was intensely about feeling. And one of the songs that she wrote, All I Want, was emotionally exhausting for her to write and to listen to. Um, It has this line, I hate you some, I hate you some, I love you some, (laughs) which is, you know, the way she was feeling, I think, about James Taylor at the time. And um, it's a really beautiful song that that describes that's a really a good pick I think to listen to from this album because it describes her great emotional kind of investment in in her relationships okay so let's play all I want Well, there's a, a, a bit of her extraordinary uh, 
tuning and guitar playing and originality all right there in one to open that song, huh? Yeah, you, I, I've never heard anybody play the guitar like that. It's just very unique. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Yep. So that was a that was a really um, big album for her. Everybody remembers that oh, one. Oh, blues, huge. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The next one was uh, for the roses. Now the her the reason she called this album for the roses and the song that came from it was it's a, a taken from the the idea of a racehorse crossing the finish line and a yep. wreath of roses is thrown over their neck yep. until one day they're taken out and shot. Oops. <laughs> her 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 allegories Ouch. always kind of end with something bad happening, but um so she identified with that with being a racehorse and knew that she would be put out to pasture eventually and David Geffen who was her manager, she felt like he saw her as a resource, even though we, they were friendly and everything. So at that time, after making Blue, she just felt well, like... It, she, it is a business, and yep. he is a businessman. That's for Went sure. on to become quite a famous and rich businessman. Oh, yeah. Rich, definitely. Definitely. We'll talk about him a little bit later, too. Mm-hmm. Um, she actually, because she was so... One of the reasons she was so depressed after you know writing the songs on Blue that she moved up to British Columbia and bought this um, and had this stone cottage built on uh, 40 acres and it was beautiful and she wrote a lot of songs for her next for the album for the roses while she was in British Columbia and one of the um, one of the songs that she wrote which I thought was really interesting is a song called Judgment of the Moon and Stars and it's about Beethoven she identified with Beethoven because they had a struggle both had a struggle between life and art they both had disabilities they had to work around his being going deaf and it really I don't know some reason it really resonated with her his story and this was her most ambitious work on the piano um, that she'd ever undertaken. No classical training on the piano. And she wrote this song for Beethoven. One more reason to hate Joni Mitchell, because she just picks it up and can do it all right away. All right, let's play (laughs) Judgment of the Moon and Stars. pop artists write songs about Beethoven. So I thought that she was going to call it uh, Roll Over Beethoven Revisited. (laughs) (laughs) That was her first idea for a title. Not her most well-known song there, but uh, certainly interesting. Yes, I do. I think it is. And I love her piano playing. 
you know, soon after that, after her last relationship, she um, embarked on a relationship with another um, amazing man, Jackson Brown. This one didn't end, you know, end Sticking very with the A-list. Well. Yes. <laughs> she, um, and also for, for one thing, he, you know, he was depressed just like James Taylor. I don't think he believed he was a heroin addict, but he was a, you know, difficult personality, I think. And, and he broke up with her and she always felt, I think, bitter toward him because of it. She came back later to write kind of bitter songs about him. And then she had a, a, some, some of the relationships. And actually, be, she, she became friends with Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson, who were the two biggest male sex symbols in Hollywood at the time. And both of them tried to get her into bed, but she wouldn't she was you know she had her standards she may have had apparently a lot of, they're not a-list no she had a lot of relationships but well they weren't musicians no, maybe they that musicians. was what it was yeah, yeah, i don't know right there right and jack nicholson uh, accepted it but warren Beatty was you know his ego couldn't take it he couldn't understand why she wouldn't want right. to you know have sex with him and she always thought maybe they had some kind of bet going on about which one could get her into bed first but apparently neither of them did so her next um album and oh, starting and a relationship mm-hmm. yes her next album was court and spark and she started a relationship with the drummer in russ, the band russ kunkel or um, no john oh. garen oh oh uh l express yes okay so he became uh, a long-term relationship and they really did collaborate on a lot of things together. And one of the reasons, speaking of her polio syndrome, which we have a couple times, is one of the reasons she got the um, Tom Scott and the LA, LA Express and these jazz musicians on board for this album was because uh, she had all these eccentric open tunings and she wanted to play with a band. And who better to be able to find, you know, eccentric, to be able to follow eccentric tunings than a jazz, than jazz musicians? Right. Right. Because they're used to kind of like, well, sussing out the situation and they would listen to her songs and, you know, scribble out their own charts that made sense to them about how the song was going. So she didn't have to teach them the song. They followed her and they brought a lot to the to the table doing that. Yeah. And uh, also on that album, of course, is her biggest hit, hit uh, I think, of, of her entire career and uh, record of the year, Help Me. That's right. It was one of her, it was her only top 10 single as a recording artist. So um, this is a, a wonderful song and, and the author describes it as cinematic. Oh, yeah. A three-minute and 24-second movie. It all feels good, but it isn't built to last. He loves his freedom, but so does she. Well, let's all go to the movies and listen (laughs) to a bit of Help Me from 1975. You're a rambler and a gambler and a sweet-talking ladies' man And you love your loving Not like you love your freedom Yeah, so, you know, what I've... I've 
read in the book was that was this was possibly about Jackson Brown, but yeah. I also read in Wikipedia that it could be <laughs> about Glenn Frey of oh. the Eagles. Oh, keeping right? it in the A uh, the A list. Okay. E- yes, keeping oh, it in the A list. Wow. Now, now Glenn Frey did not the conquests make... keep coming. I know, but he wasn't even he wasn't in this book. So I thought, oh my God, there's another one that probably J- David Yaffe was um, kind of you know cutting it down. Trying uh, maybe not he to never put... maybe he never got a chance to talk to uh, oh, yeah, Glenn. That's probably so. true. Yeah. yeah. Um, another song off this album. Well, there's so many so songs many, yeah. off this album, but I mean, we don't have to play it, but the a Free Man in Paris, which was written yep. about David Geffen, one of the oh, uh, uh, reasons. Oh, being, being a gay man. Yeah, and, he yes. was a free man in Paris mm-hmm. because they didn't care about homosexuality right. um, as much as we tight-ass mm-hmm. Americans do, did and do. <laughs> do. <laughs> Less so today yes. than certainly then. And oh, now, you know, he didn't want her to put it on the record because um, he thought people would know from hearing the song, which everybody was too obtuse and didn't understand what was what she was singing about so it was okay well i'm not going to play that to make everybody go and listen to it yes it's a great song i like that one so um what the next thing that she did after the album court and spark came out was take it on the road and um she um had robin ford who was a an amazing guitar player yeah young Mm -hmm. young young you know just kick-ass guitar player come on the um come on the tour and there was an actual album from the tour called miles of isles so um that that was you know a successful tour for her and robin ford was a great addition because he had no trouble translating the language of her open chords and what a great you know um, situation for him to be able to tour with Joni Mitchell. They became friends, not lovers, because he was a little too, too young, young and married and not, also. And not A-list. Yes. Yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, how many of these albums, you know, for going back to um, For the Roses, and can she can she actually create before she's put out to pasture? That's something that's on her mind. When is she going to be put out to pasture? I don't know. Pretty good track record so far. Yeah, so far. Though the next the next album, Hissing of Summer Lawns, was not really what her label wanted. Um, you know, she one of the things that happened was she she was being an individual and you know producing her and doing what she wanted to do and experimenting. And for a while, because she had such a great following, such a loyal following, her followers followed her to whatever she did, even if it was experimental. But eventually that started catching up with her and she did lose, you know, fans over... A change you know, in direction. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, that happens. Yeah. So you want to hear about the next person she hooked up with? Why not? <laughs> Sam Shepard. Oh, yes. hey, not a musician. No, not a musician. Playwright. A playwright actor. and an actor. Yeah. And damn handsome. She met him when she went on Smoldering the- Smoldering type. The what? The smoldering type, the, right? Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> and quite a player, too. Yeah. Um, she went on the Rolling Thunder review with Joan, with Bob Dylan oh, and yeah, Joan yeah, Baez. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and she met, and apparently Sam Shepard was along for the ride. I'm not quite sure why. But Where there's a party. That's right. And she wrote the song Coyote about him, which you you played on at the last um, uh, yes, in podcast. The, in, with the with the, the, the David Yaffe interview, yes. Yes. So he was uh you know 
know, he wasn't just a playwright and an actor and damn good looking. He also had a wife at home and he had another girlfriend. So that the coyote is about that juggling act. You know, she <laughs> had to to um, kind of be part of. But it was just a, a tour romance, not a serious one. And she left the Rolling Thunder tour to go on her own tour to to um, push the album The Hissing of Summer Lawns. She was still with her her boyfriend, John Guerin, who was um, her Part of the LA drummer. Express, right. Yeah. And he was quite a jealous guy. And he actually was jealous of Bob Dylan, and there was nothing going on between them. Well, aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> but he caught them, you know, like hanging out in a hotel room at night together, oh. t- probably talking about mm. music. And, yeah. And then um, she had to, you know, break up with him. But then um, he, this is another example of her continuing to collaborate. He came on the tour with her, even though they were broken up and brought his girlfriend with him. And things just started getting really weird. And they, there was a gig um, that they did and the sound was really, really bad. And she sang two words of help me and left the stage and didn't continue this tour. So this is the tour that Yafe was talking about that she left in Mm -hmm. the lurch. Right, right. Yeah, which was, you know, a big deal because it cost people a lot of money. But, you know, walking away usually does. Her well-being was more important than that. And in the meantime, uh, while they were on tour, they she wrote enough songs to to put on a new new album. And it was called Hegira, which means escape with honor. Which she had done on the tour, which I thought was really interesting. Yes. Kind of cool. So this is where, this is the album where she started collaborating with the great Jaco Pastorius. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yes. Um, after she left the tour, she started traveling around by herself and she went to visit Robin Ford in Boulder and he introduced her to Jaco Pastorius's new album and also, you know, got them together and... He, Joni always said that Jaco Pastorius was her dream bass player. He sounded like she had dreamed him up. He, and he was very influential on other solo, uh, other bass players and was one of the first people to kind of rip the, rip all the frets out of his, his electric bass and to make a, a fretless oh, bass fretless. out of it mm-hmm. because it just, you know, he needed more. He, he didn't want to be, you know, tied down to the frets. <laughs> And she was also impressed by him because he used the bass in a way that it could go all the way up to the soprano range and all the way back down again. So he was using the entire bass. I like this quote. He compared frets to speed bumps. They just got in his way. So just remove them. Yes, yes. Right. So um, I'm kind of um, torn between which songs from that album to play that would really show his bass playing because... Mm -hmm. You know, it's very distinctive. One of them is Hajira. I think it shows it very well. And the other one is Black Crow. Ooh. I know. I don't know. Well, just, we're just going to have to go with Hajira. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good choice. I defect from 
some beautiful fretless plane right uh, right there so yeah it's gorgeous oh my god gorgeous yeah so Jocko was in her uh, life for a while um, actually she had an affair with him too he also had a wife at home but he was you know pretty unstable so I think after a while she's like okay I'll just have a little affair with you and otherwise I just want you in my band as much as possible yeah he's a a bipolar yeah and coke coke um, doesn't help everybody did coke everybody was doing uh, coke including her so um, one thing that um, tickled me about uh, this book was you know all of the pieces um, the ways that people overlapped um, especially of the the people that I have reviewed you know whose books I have reviewed and so Rob Robbie Robertson tells the story of the last waltz, of course, in the book that in his autobiography. And um, he tells about how Joni Mitchell came, you know, on the scene and they decided to put her behind the screen um, at first when she's harmonizing with Neil Young on Helpless. Right. Before she um, comes out to sing Coyote. So that she can have Mm -hmm. a grand entrance, Mm -hmm. you know. But she tells it to David Yaffe that she didn't want to be on stage with them because they wanted her to do three-part harmony, Neil Young and Robbie, and they were so high and they were out of tune and she didn't know how she was going to harmonize with them on stage. So she decided she wanted, she needed to be by herself and really concentrate. So they um, stuck her in the back. I so, know she, you know, she, she's in the movie. You see her, you right. see her back there. Sitting uh, behind the curtain. Yeah, kind of, doing, yeah. In, the, in the backstage saying all right well let's yeah. let's let's play let's, like the the middle part where she is singing with everybody yeah, uh, on helpless featuring neil young and, and of course the band throwing shadows on our eyes leave us helpless helpless Something sounds out of tune there. I would have to I, agree. I, <laughs> but I don't I think, think it's them. She sounds a little out of tune, certainly to start with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's face it, she's behind the stage, uh, probably doesn't have the best monitoring system back there. Yeah. Um, I, I'd give her a pass, definitely, but I, I, I don't think they are so far out of tune. They seem like they're in tune with each other and yeah. their instruments. That's oh. the important thing. Okay, well, moving on, since this is about Joni. Called, uh, uh, Don Juan's rest, rest, Reckless Daughter in oh, between. And uh-huh. then the next um, big album that she put out was called Mingus. Now, I think this is a really interesting album because she collaborated with Charlie yeah. Mingus, who was suffering from ALS at the time and was only 55 and, um, you know, and couldn't even hold his instrument anymore. He was a great upright bass player player and he couldn't he couldn't do it anymore so his 
wife wanted him to work on a really great project for his last project before he died. And um, he loved poetry. So he called in Joni because he loved one of her albums and he wanted to set T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, a book of poetry to music. And she didn't like, but she didn't like the book. What they, what they ended up doing was he wanted her to put words to some of his, his jazz instrumental compositions. And she did this with the song um, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat which was one of his compositions and it was um, a John Handy classic solo and she wanted him I mean, he wanted her to write vocalese lyrics for it. Now, vocalese is a really interesting thing. This is something that scat singers did. They it was a you know a form of uh, songwriting to put to put lyrics to jazz solos, and so that's what she was tasked with doing. And she couldn't figure out exactly how to do it. But one day, apparently Lester Young did wear a pork pie hat. So that's why Mingus wrote this song about him. And she was wandering around Manhattan humming the solo to herself and came up from the subway and saw a bar called the Pork Pie Hat Bar. What, what a coincidence, right? So she's trying to write uh, lyrics to a song about Goodbye Pork Pie Hat and walks right into something called a Pork Pie Hat Bar. Meant to be. Yeah, and a group of, of men and boys, black men and boys, standing around dancing, and the two boys were dancing. There's two generations. And so anyway, she just took this, the lyrics from this story about coming out of the subway and seeing this bar. And the mm. bar was, and inside the bar was a, another bar called Charlie's. So, uh, you know, Charlie's for Charles Mingus. So it was very too perfect. So she had to create the lyrics out of that story. And let's just say also that, uh, you know, Jocko was on this album along with Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock. Right. uh, And some other guys from Weather Report as well. So that's just, again, she's now playing with really, really big big time players out there. Top shelf jazz musicians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's play a little of... uh, Goodbye, Pork Pie Hat. When Charlie speaks of Lester, you know someone great has gone. The sweetest swinging music man had a porky pig hat on. A bright star in a dark age when the bandstands had a thousand ways of refuse. A black man admission Black musician In those days they put him in An underdog position Wow, that's a, a very torchy sort of uh, old school going back to the 40s uh, a- beautiful jazz playing she sounds different uh, yeah. here definitely she definitely sounds more sultry oh, and um, wow yeah and part of that was you know her voice was changing yeah but first yeah. first she was getting well, she's older, getting older. Yeah, and she's, second she's smoking lots four packs of cigarettes a day which uh, she says the cigarettes never do anything to her but yeah it does i, so can, I just, mean if i smoke it just, just a little it ruins my it voice does. for the day it does because it does. So. <laughs> so. let's face it the 80s 
aren't exactly kind to Joni Mitchell. I mean, what she's doing and where she's playing. And this happened to a lot of artists that uh, right. came out of the 60s and the 70s. You know, um, the punk explosion blew everything up. You know, the MTV generation yeah, arrives. Electronics come in. So, And I know she experimented with some of that. She did, um, yeah. Thomas so, Dolby helped her, you know, produce one of her records. But yeah. she hated him. She hated it. <laughs> you know, she didn't like doing that. Right. Yeah. yeah. In fact, yeah, definitely the 80s were not and you know that she was more personality wise and artistically in line with the 70s and the yeah. 80s were more about being kind of sly and hip and cool and you know and she she actually tried <laughs> to fit in with the 80s and for the 80s to fit in with her but it didn't, well, one just piece, didn't work one piece of the 80s where she did kind of fit in a little bit was uh you know the philanthropic uh period uh you know certainly in the mid 80s when you know you get live aid and uh, band-aid and usa for africa and all that i think she had a song on uh, dog eat dog which i think is uh, was was from the middle 80s yes uh, as a response to the the issues of the day you know mostly ethiopia Yes, Ethiopia was, um, yeah, in response to the famine in Ethiopia. And she, you know, stepped up to the plate. Actually, you know, earlier than that, she she started moving, you know, still had her love songs, but started getting more topical. And this was this is a good example of um, of of what she was able to do with that. And apparently after she this one came out, she bumped into Nina Simone at the mall who just walked past her, not speaking to her, but just raised her arms in a V and yelled Ethiopia. So she had, you know, people that were really responding to that song. Well, let's play a little bit of it. drums lots of reverb lots of gate uh yeah that is uh you know that's definitely an 80s song yeah she she did um i don't know four or five songs um albums in the 80s and um but but you know none of them were no you know kind of hearkened back popularity wise Mm -hmm. to she's starting to lose some of you know her audience even her her loyal fans and in the 90s she it starts to get it back a little bit in like 94 with turbulent indigo right yeah that was a um actually a one album of the year yeah at the grammys in 1995 yeah yeah and she also was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame 
um, um, I guess in 96 or around that time, but Mm -hmm. she still felt undervalued because one of the reasons the day after her album won the Grammy, there was an article that talked about singer songwriters then and now, and she was in the then category and she was really insulted. It's like, I just won the fucking Grammy, you know, (laughs) how how is that then? Uh, You know, that, that stayed with her. One of the songs from that album, which is said to be about Jackson Brown is called Not to Blame. And he, besides the fact that she always felt bitter toward him because he broke up with her and I think probably wasn't too nice to her at that time and he was very depressed, soon after or sometime after that, um, his wife committed suicide. And then uh, a story came out in the paper that um, his girlfriend, Daryl Hannah, yeah. had accused him of, of a, a battery. Yeah, domestic abuse. And so yeah. she wrote this song um, about that. And Brown always thought that she went too far in the song because she she made an allusion to his th- his three year old child that um, was left behind when his wife committed suicide. So you know, there's obviously a lot of of relationship and and bitterness kind of on both sides there. All right, let's play a little of Not to Blame. A story hit the news from coast to coast. Said you beat the girl you love the most. Your charitable acts seemed out of place. With a beauty with your fist marks on her face. Your body's all stood by, they bet they're. Fortunes and the fame. Well, <clears throat> that could be an anthem for the Me Too moment of yes, today. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, you get a little of Wayne Shorter there to uh, start things off. Um, yeah. So beautiful. Uh, anyway, uh, wow, that was uh, yeah. And I think I think that's the last time she really charts was uh, 1994, right? Um, apparently, yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, soon after that, she, after that album came out, um, she, the, the, the story broke in 1995 that she had had a daughter that she gave up for adoption. So the secret was out by that time. She didn't really care. It wasn't that big a secret. You know, it was like, okay, well, times have changed. I'm older now. It's not that shame of having, you know, right. being, being an unmarried yeah. mother yeah. wasn't so big anymore, you know? And, um, and then a couple of years later her daughter actually found her in in 1997 her name was Killarin Gibb and she was a single mother and a runway model so um so Joni was in the middle of an album at that time Taming of the Tiger and she claimed that all her previous songwriting emerged from the loss of her daughter and now that she found her it was done which which the, our author, Yafe, found kind of reductive. I mean, you know, many like Ethiopia, mm-hmm. you couldn't say was about. I mean, it could be because there were mothers in Ethiopia that couldn't care for their no, children I, or I, lost I, them. As I put to him, it's it's that she used the loss of her daughter and the fact that this this person was out there that she didn't know and should uh, and all the complicated emotions that go around that as the muse. Right. And then once it's now flesh and blood, 
and in front of you the the fantasies that you could make to create the stories the the uh, uh, the grist that uh, that 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 emotional issue would would cause is is like evaporated right. So it's, maybe, may I, I, hey, that's just me being a, you know, armchair psychologist here. But, right. but uh, I mean, you know, she, she's very definitive of about that, you know, hey, when that happened, uh, you know, her ability uh, and how she wrote songs right. uh, changed greatly. Right. And, and, you know, you, I can see how the reality of actually having an adult daughter with all of her own, you know, resentments and, um, and psychology and everything was not as romantic as the, you know, you know how when you're like kind of in love with somebody, but you don't know them that well, and they're a little bit of a fantasy and, and then you get to know them and it's like, oh, you... <laughs> you right. stink or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Not that that's how she feels about her daughter, no. I'm sure, but but yes, yeah, it's 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 different. It wasn't smooth. They change. didn't have a smooth relationship because your daughter had her own life, you know. It's yeah. not like I'm I didn't just wasn't just a baby and now I'm in your arms again. Right. I had my whole life. You didn't get to take part in it, you yeah. know. It's, and it's now we have to somehow come to terms with that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, all right. So you know, it's a big book. It's a uh, it's it's a complicated book, just like her. Uh, uh, and it's impressionistic. Uh, you know, uh, we I had a great time talking to David Yaffe about it. You know, but more importantly, what does the rock and roll librarian think of uh, of the book? It was it was amazing. You know, the scope of the book. I, I was very impressed with his ability to bring. You know, not only all the different interviews and find all the people that would have interesting and informative things to say about Joni and had relationships with her, but he really dives into the music and in the way only a musician and a music, you know, professor right, can do. Right, from Syracuse. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, really breaks down a lot of the songs. So if you're really interested in who played on her songs, why, what their relationships were with each other, and how she developed her, her sounds, this is a really great book. And also understanding her, her psychology. And she is a very complicated person, as you said. And, you know, just, he, he really, you know, digs into her warts and all and still loves her and so do you know I think that people reading this book will feel that way too like oh yeah she's not a perfect person she's not a goddess she's complicated but she's you know created all this great music and she's you know lovable in a certain way um so I you know I thought it I thought he did a really great job with that it was a huge undertaking well, everybody should go out and get Reckless Daughter by yeah. David Yaffe. It's uh, it's definitely a really, really good book. I got really to say, I got to say, though, you know, it's it's not true that she never wrote again after she met her daughter. She did have a couple albums in the beginning of the 2000 that went back and revisited some of her her older stuff. And um, but the one album that really sticks out is an album called Shine that she wrote mm-hmm. that she um, produced in 2000. 2007 and she, these were new songs that she wrote so it that ended her 10 years of drought after finding her daughter and writing really topical songs about the environment and politics and such in fact one of one of her instrumentals won a grammy that year so you know she she lives on 
And um, there was an, a fantastic version of Big Yellow Taxi on that Yeah, album. she circled back to the beginning of yeah, her career yeah. uh, with that as well. Yeah, so um, I mean, that's a really cool version of Big Yellow Taxi. And of course, Joni had a stroke uh, in 2015. That's right. Uh, and uh, she's coming back. We, we, we've seen some pictures of her out and about, uh, you know. That's Who right. knows? Maybe maybe we'll hear more from, from her. I certainly hope so. Uh, all right, I'm going to play us out with that 2000. 2007 version from Shine of Big Yellow Taxi. Keep up the rockin'. So they paved paradise, put up a parking lot with a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging night spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? Put up a parking lot They took all the trees Put them in a tree museum And they charged all the people An arm and a leg just to see Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. The Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 